can go ahead and do that. And uh, I'll just say um, I was thankful that TJ allowed me to preach on the Psalms. I find preaching through the Proverbs as notoriously difficult. So um, I give him the credit for, for doing that series. Um, but Psalm 73 is a wisdom psalm. It's a psalm of Asaph uh, in book three of the Psalter. And um, as I'll explain in a minute, it really does, it seems like it's just right out of something you would read in Ecclesiastes or the book of Job um, and, and aspects of Proverbs as well. But it is a privilege to be here to, to bring God's word to you this morning. We're going to read the entire Psalm 73. This is God's word. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, and all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Do you please pray with me? Father in heaven, may the uh, words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you know, I love the Psalms because they are so honest about the confounding nature of life and our struggle against our sin, yet at the very same time, they're so grounded in the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 73 is considered to be a wisdom psalm, 
because it has many of the same literary elements that you'd find in Job or Ecclesiastes or Proverbs. Professor Mark Furtado said that wisdom literature teaches us how to put God's instruction into practice in many of the major areas of life, like how you relate to your money, how you face death, how you handle your sin, how you use your tongue, and particularly in this psalm, how you wrestle with the perplexities of life. There are aspects of Psalm 73 that mirror what we see in Ecclesiastes and Job, where, where those texts are dealing with, why does life go like it does? Why am I struggling? Where you have Proverbs that deals with, really, how life should go. Job and Ecclesiastes and this psalm are dealing with the reality that we see around us, the tragedies we see around us, the sin we see inside of us. The author asks, why do the righteous suffer and the unrighteous prosper? This isn't right. It doesn't seem fair. And at the core of who we are, it doesn't. We know it's not right. And so the question becomes, where is God? What is he doing? So why do we need this psalm this morning? Why do we need wisdom? Well, like the psalmist, I'm often perplexed by life. We know that God's good, but the world is not. And like the psalmist, our feet are slipping, and we're surrounded by brokenness, injustice, and tears of sadness. Just a couple examples. We can think of examples, some... Uh, minor relative to other things, and some major things that shake you to your very core. Um, Our office administrator uh, last week was telling me as she was leaving work uh, one day during the week, she went out to her car, and the whole back window of her car was completely shattered. Um, And the only thing she could guess happened was uh, a lawnmower must have flung a rock because there was a guy cutting grass that day. Um, but just sort of one of, your, one of those things like, why? Why is my life so hard? Why, is this, why do I have to go through this? But also there's things in life that shake you to your very core. I was thinking particularly of what happened in Miami recently with the condominium collapsing. And we ask, why, Lord? Especially when we compare that to wicked people, terrorists, who we know are still living and breathing when we, have, when we know we have good people who are, dying, who are dying of tragedies like that. But the sin is internal as well. The difficulties in life cause us to question God in our hearts. We ask, is he good? Is he near? Has he left us? Are we on the same team, God? Well, so maybe you're feeling disoriented like I sometimes get. And there's this term in aviation called spatial disorientation. It's when the pilot has lost the ability to understand the direction of the aircraft and its relation to the earth and, or any point of reference. And the pilot's perception of direction doesn't agree with reality. This can happen during poor weather conditions with low or no visibility. And if the pilot does not know how to use his or her instruments, a pilot can think they're flying straight, but they're really spiraling toward the ground. Many aircraft crashes have been caused by spatial disorientation. And see, this can be true of us spiritually as well. We can think we're headed straight. We can think we're going fine, but we're really in a death spiral. Maybe you know something's wrong. Maybe you know something's off in your spiritual life, but you're not sure how to get reoriented. Maybe you're blind to a death spiral and need to be awakened this morning, need to be shocked back into life. You need to read your instruments, don't you? We need to be able to read our instruments, what God has given us, uh, to to course correct. 
A couple weeks ago, I was driving my car to a session meeting on a Saturday morning, and as I'm driving along, I'm going about 55, 60, things are going great. I just happened to glance uh, at my instrument panel, and I looked at the engine heat level, and it was all the way on hot. And if you're a teenager this morning, you're learning how to drive, that's not a good thing. You never want to see the instrument go all the way on hot. And as I looked at the hood, I started to see some smoke coming up over the hood. Long story short, I, I got the radiator replaced a few days later. But that wasn't good. I, w- I was able to see my instruments, and I was able to see uh, that, that if I kept driving in the condition it was, I was going to uh, not be able to drive that car anymore. You see, this psalm is a roadmap to get us back on track, to get us reoriented toward God. And God has a message for us today in this psalm. It's that in the midst of the confusion of life, God is enough. And drawing near to Him is all we need to have a right understanding of the world and ourselves. So I've got um, a couple points for us. The first is that what we see is that the psalmist is far from God. Far from God. And the question we want to ask is, why do we drift away? Far from God, and why do we drift away? The second point I'll be making after this is, is, is we see the psalmist drawing near to God. And so what brings us back? That's the question we're going to ask. And then lastly, we'll consider life with God. What does life with God look like? So firstly, far from God, why do we drift away? Well, looking at verses 1 through 15, you can see from the beginning that the psalmist is in the midst of a struggle. He knows God is good to Israel, verse 1, to those who are pure in heart. However, all is not well. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. You see, this is a picture of a believer who's been drifting away from God. And the psalm highlights three reasons that indicate to us that we're drifting away from God. The first is in verse 3. Look at verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, what is envy? What is envy? Well, envy strips away any enjoyment of life because envy is a lie that tells you that you'd be more happy with more stuff, a different life perhaps, or more pleasures, etc., The power of envy is such that it made even the Garden of Eden feel like it wasn't enough. But what does envy actually do to us? How does it work? A lady named Perul Segal is an editor at the New York Times Book Review, and she says, Jealousy and envy train us to look with intensity, but not accuracy. In fact, the more intensely jealous we are, the more we become residents of fantasy. Jealousy and envy muddles our minds. I think we see this easily on social media, when we're looking through uh, different pages, when we are looking at the influencers on social media, advertisements, they tell us, they show us a picture of what life, uh, that life is perfect with, for, with these people, when really we know we're only getting a snapshot, and many people are struggling on the inside. I saw an advertisement for a cruise, and... There were no lines you know, going down the slide. There were, there were no lines at the buffet. Uh, they were going kayaking, and a whale jumped in front of them. This is amazing, amazing commercial to go on this cruise. But we know life is not like that. And you know, to a certain extent, Asaph is, is doing this with the ungodly. For almost 10 verses, 
he has described the wicked with jealousy and over-the-top ways. He's focusing in so much that he forgets the reality. He forgets the eternal realities. He forgets that despite temporal circumstances, God is truly good to Israel. Now think about your own life. Do you struggle with envy? And if so, what, what causes you to envy other people? For the psalmist, it was the prosperity that other people had. Look at verses 4 and 5. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He's saying that their bodies were fat, meaning well fed and well taken care of. They don't have to worry about paying next month's bills. Money's not an issue for them. They have friends in high places and they have plenty of resources to remove them from the daily cares of life. And friends, this speaks to a temptation that we all have, isn't it? Have you ever thought, it'd be much easier if I would just rid myself of God and His rules and just took care of me, myself and I, and then I could focus on my entire life on making money, bringing comfort into my life. I could work the extra hours, get the raise, climb the ladder. Who cares if I cut some corners? Who cares if I steal and lie, neglect others, run over people? All that matters is making myself happy, comfortable, and wealthy. And you see, for Christians, and we know that's not the right answer, right? For Christians, the pursuit of God will always conflict with the pursuit of money. The pursuit of God will always conflict. At some point in, at some point in your life, you'll see that conflict. At maybe some or, or many points in your life, you'll see that conflict. That you have to give up the love of money and the pursuit of money for God. You know, Jesus told a parable in Luke 12 of a man who, who spent his entire life storing up food and wealth, and all his hard work after he was done, he said to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, the first problem that Jesus says there is, is um, who, who, who will those riches be? You're gonna, if you, you will die, and they won't be yours anymore. And you have no say how that money will be spent or how that wealth will be used. But more importantly, your soul will be required of you. You will have to give an account as to what you loved and what you served and whether or not you were rich toward God. He goes on, Jesus goes on in that parable explaining that you know, all the nations of the world seek after these things, but instead seek His kingdom, seek God's kingdom, and these things will be added to you. If you seek God's kingdom, He will give you what you need, Jesus is saying. He tells us not to be anxious, but to trust God and to know that He cares for you. Well, what else causes us to drift away? Look at verses 9 through 11. They reveal another reason the psalmist was jealous of the wicked. It reads, They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And so what's the root and foundation of their life? It's self-sufficiency. They have no need for God. They question not only his existence, but his usefulness. Can God know? 
So sure of their place among men, they assume that if there is a God, he is surely in their debt. They're so sure of themselves that none of their followers question them. There was this interview uh, that Michael Bloomberg gave back in 2014. Uh, He was the former mayor of New York City. And he uh, was talking about his work for gun control, his work for anti-smoking, healthy eating campaigns. And he says in that interview, more or less, that he has won favor with God because of these things that he's done. His exact words to the New York Times were, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. So, he's pretty set on on where he thinks he's going. And we may laugh, and we may easily see this in other people, but if we're honest with ourselves, we can all have this tendency. If not feeling self-sufficient ourselves, we admire others who are. We don't want to need anyone else. In fact, we want God to need us sometimes, to be in debt to us. But where does all this envy self-sufficiency come from? Why do we wander from God and His promises? Verse 13 reveals what's happening in the heart of the psalmist. Look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What's he saying here? What's he saying here? Well, he's done all the right things. Not only has he done all the outwardly religious activities, like keeping the law, keeping himself undefiled, but also in his heart. He hasn't he says he hasn't harbored idols. He hasn't coveted after things he didn't have. But alas, none, none of this has made any difference. The psalmist concludes that living a godly life has not brought him wealth. It has not brought him freedom from troubles, verse 12. And therefore, it's been in vain, verse 13. As another commentator puts it, his obedience was not in, in the way of pleasing God, but rather a means of getting God to please him. When we say to God, I'll serve you if X happens, whatever X is, then it's X that we love, and God is just a necessary apparatus for obtaining it. And you see, the shock of this admission begins to clear his mind. He says his heart is clean, but where was his heart really? Was it with God, or was it with whatever he was envying? Have you ever felt this way? Robbed of your reward, all your hard work for nothing? In response, we need to remember two very, very important things. Number one, God is always good. Remember verse one, God is good to Israel. He says that from the outset. And number two, divine goodness is not prosperity necessarily in this life, but divine presence in this life and in the life to come. That's what divine goodness is. It's presence. It's divine presence of God. And so the message of the psalmist begins to learn is that even in the midst of the brokenness of life, God's continually with us. God is enough. God's presence means that you may be poor, but you're rich in Christ. God's presence means that you may be forgotten by the world, but you're remembered by God. God's presence means you may be hated by the world, but you're loved by Jesus Christ. Why do people leave the faith when life gets hard? Why do people leave the faith? Most likely, it's because they're doubting God's goodness. And perhaps they believe that His goodness includes some measure of earthly prosperity. 
And when that prosperity is taken away, they reject God. Friends, if you're a Christian, you have something better than earthly prosperity. You have divine presence. That's the first idea. The second idea is is how do we come back? Near to God, we see him move back to God. How do we come back? Verses 16 and 17 is the whole turning point of the psalm. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You see, the psalmist is reaching a breaking point. He's at his last rope. He's weary. He's tired. He wants to be drawn back to God. And how does it happen? I went into the sanctuary of God. At the moment of complete despair, in the act of going to the place of worship, his head begins to clear. Now, why does the sanctuary, why does the temple in his day, why why does it have this effect? G.K. Beale says, What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What you revere, you resemble. Psalm 115.8 says, Those who make idols are like them, so everyone who trusts in them. You see, there's a transformation that happens in the context of worship. We become what we worship. And that's true for anything we worship. The psalmist is saying if you worship idols of created things, you become spiritually lifeless and senseless, just like them. But if you worship God, as we were designed to worship, you begin to change, to be like Him. Paul writes as much in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now hear me carefully now. This is, this is important. There's no secret formula to being brought into God's presence, being reoriented to God and growing as a believer. God has given us ordinary, practical ways of hearing from Him and growing in grace. It's not through miraculous visions or prophetic dreams or special powers, but it's through common things like reading God's Word, believing that His promises are for you. It's through the sign and seal of our salvation and baptism. It's through the regular, uh, frequent celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's expressed through prayer and wholesale reliance on the Lord. It's through these tangible, ordinary means that the Holy Spirit does miraculous things. So do not forsake these things for yourself or your family. Remember, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. And this, makes, this brings us to the most important way in which entering the sanctuary helps us come back to God. In the sanctuary, we're reminded of God's grace. It's in the sanctuary that we're reminded of the gospel. It's in the gospel that we're told about the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in the gospel that we're told of a Savior who was trampled down in this life. Isaiah tells us he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Like the wicked who mock God by saying, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Jesus' kingship was mocked as he hung on the cross. They said he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He endured the pangs and punishments reserved for wicked people. If anyone deserved a prosperous life, it was Jesus. But he was forsaken by God. 
He became the perfect sacrifice for sins because he never drifted away from God. He never became envious of the world. Instead, he was jealous for God's glory. He never lived a self-sufficient life, but constantly relied on his Father through prayer. He never doubted God's goodness, but knew that death would purchase the salvation of his bride, the church. You see, the psalmist, Asaph, points us forward to the pure one. When he tells us to go to the sanctuary, he's pointing us to the pure one who purifies us as we hope in him. What we read earlier from John, 1 John, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The gospel message that we're told, we're told about the one who who allows us to draw near to God because he first drew near to us. That's how salvation happens. Through his blood, he cleanses us and purifies our souls. We are qualified by his perfect record to be called sons and daughters of God. Not by our works, but only by Christ's perfect works. It's through his finished work and secured life with God. The fog now begins to lift for Asaph at this point. Verses 18 through 20 display this newfound confidence that he now knows where the eternal destination of the wicked will be. These last verses of the psalm give us some practical insights into how we ought to live as God's children in the sin-ravaged world. For the first reason, though, is, is that we gain an eternal perspective on things. Look at verses 18 and 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You see, the wicked are compared to dreams that are barely remembered once we wake. They lack substance, they're temporary. And so all things that are not united to God, the giver of life and reality, will ultimately lack life and reality themselves. It's like when you wake up and you're trying to remember that dream you just had and it just it slips through your hands and you can't remember exactly what took place. It just blows away with the wind. That's, that's the destination of the wicked. Not lasting. Gone as soon as you see it. But we also get a reminder of the true reality of, this, of the psalmist's own errors. Look at verses 21 and 22. He, he, he sees now where he was wrong. He says, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. You see, despite our errors, we can stand firm and say what he says in verse 23. A beautiful confession of faith, one to be remembered and memorized. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What a beautiful beautiful statement of faith. Essentially what he's saying is God is enough. When the world falls away, when the wicked fall away, when life is difficult, God is enough. 
Despite our failures, God remains with us. Despite the perplexing situations in life, God is still near. Our destination is glory. The wicked's destination is judgment. He says, you will receive me to glory. What a, what a beautiful statement in the Old Testament we get of future glory, hope of eternal life in the Psalms. Our destination is glory, brothers and sisters. And so, brothers and sisters, we're called to believe these promises. Do you? Are you drinking deeply of these truths this morning? And if you're not, or if you're not a Christian here this morning, ask yourself, where is my hope? What do I cling to when I need real help? And is it enough? Is is it enough not just in the moment, but the rest of my life? Is it enough? I would appeal to you this morning to run to God. He's the only one that, that is enough, that is strong enough, good enough, merciful enough to bring you lasting joy. And believer, even when God seems far away, you know that He is near. We go through dry seasons. We go through difficult seasons when God seems far away. Is it not true? But Christ is a fountain that never runs dry. He's always available through the means of grace, through our prayers to Him. He hears us. Go to Him. Be in His Word. Cry out to God in prayer and see Him move. Wait for Him He'll bring you exactly what you need. He's enough. Trust Him through all of life's difficulties. God in Christ is enough to satisfy you and to save you. So we need the wisdom in this psalm, don't we? We need to hear these truths that God is with us, that He is enough. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful reminder of the gospel. At whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Would you hide those words in our heart, Father, when life becomes difficult, when tragedy hits us, when we see sin in our heart that gets exposed, May we cling to you, run to your grace, and find comfort in your word. Father, encourage us this day. As we go forth from here, would you, would you lift us up, encourage us that we are your children, that we have right standing before you because of what Christ has done to save us. Lift up our hearts, lift up our eyes to this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.